Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news and all the latest on the soccerers and Matildas with Willem van Dendren shortly, plus our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, first up, last week's decision by FIFA to accept sponsorship from Visit Saudi for the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand later this year blew up across the football world. Former New Zealand international mayor Jackman, one of FIFA's Beyond Greatness champions, a team of women promoting the World Cup said Saudi sponsorship of the Women's World Cup would be in complete opposition to female empowerment and set back her work as an ambassador for the tournament. To make some sense of the discussion around the issue, we'll talk to Craig Foster, one of the most eminent human rights campaigners in world football and former skipper of the Socceroos himself. Then we'll resume our discussion on the World Cup. On the pitch this week, we'll look at the preparations of the English women's team following their heroics in the Women's Euros last year with Nancy Frostick from The Athletic, and we'll wrap it up with everything else we've missed in World Cup Corner. Edge, it's a busy show. Uh, We're going to get a bit um, uh, heavy at times in this conversation. Um, that's what you do when you get Craig on and you discuss topics uh, of this nature. But somehow or other in the in the scope of the discussion, we're going to try and uh, see both sides of the argument. We are. Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners uh, to Box to Box, wherever you are. Um, a beautiful afternoon in Bangkok where, I'm, where I am at the moment. Um, yeah, looking forward to talk to Craig. He's one of the most informed people uh, on human rights and the intersection into the FIFA politics and what this means. Um, there's obviously, um, I've got a bit of, bit of a unique perspective. I can talk about some of my lived experience in the Middle East. But yeah, looking forward to talking to Craig because it's always, uh, it's always um, informative and um, you'll get a very interesting perspective um, and we hope our listeners will enjoy that interview. Uh, but we've got mm. Derek. Is here. I wanted to ask Derek, um, are we smiling are we thanking our mates at Tottenham? Yes, I think we are, hey, John. We were we were Tottenham fans for ninety minutes, weren't we? Uh, overnight, and obviously after the the disappointment, if not not particularly surprised by the uh, new manager bounce over at Everton. Uh, obviously, watching uh, Spurs do what they have done recently, regularly against City, and that's beat them at their own stadium. Uh, certainly helped Arsenal out and retain that gap. So yeah, don't want to. Don't want to cheer Spurs on too loudly, but there maybe was a little fist bump uh, to myself when I checked the score the following morning. Well, even when you lost, I had nowhere to go because we're absolutely shit house right now at uh, Anfield and uh, looking no better. For those people who uh, don't know who Rob supports, I think you know who he supports, don't you, Willem? It's the team that's going absolutely shit house, I think, isn't it, Edge? Yeah, let's let's circle back to the Saudi Arabia story to start, Michael. You said that you have a little bit of lived experience, so I wanted to ask you about that before we welcome Craig in. Uh, how it's played out this week, Football Australia and New Zealand Football have written to FIFA seeking clarification on its decision to welcome Visit Saudi as a Women's World Cup sponsor. Craig has called the sponsorship between the tournament and Saudi's tourism um, galling, while former Matilda Moya Dodd has written, it's hard to imagine a greater mismatch for the unique and valued audience women's football has accrued. Football Australia stated it was very disappointed not to have been consulted by FIFA prior to the announcement edge. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's scathing criticism of that's very uh, entitled and worth uh, and worthy. Um, there's no doubt about it. My big issue with the criticism is how it's received in the Arab world, which is a big 
environment, 350 million people. It's very diverse and sophisticated. And that this uh, type of criticism is often um, emboldens the more conservative elements of Middle Eastern society or Arabic society who want to enshrine um, or, or resist the you know more progressive um, social reforms that, uh, in fairness, uh, from my perspective anyway, we need to acknowledge places like Qatar and Saudi that have been undertaking over the last four years. Yes, it's a big journey they're on, but they've started, uh, they're making progress, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. So, yeah, I'm interested to... That's my big perspective uh, of my lived experience in the Middle East is that um, how the Western world's criticism is received is often um, it does more harm than good in some quarters. We'll leave it there for now. Not long, and Craig will be in to, uh, to get stuck into it, uh, meat and all. But big week domestically as well. Football Australia has invited clubs with deep connection and demonstrated history to express interest in a national second division, earmarked to start in March 2024. The tier would sit below the A-League men's competition with promotion and relegation to be considered once mature, with between 10 and 16 teams to compete in a league and finals format. Crucially, clubs would need to offer players and staff year-round professional contracts and rob that seems to be uh, the kicker. $800,000 licensing fees is also the number that has been uh, going around, and that's going to be tough for these clubs to uh, to step up and fulfil, not just to, to get up and running ahead of March 2024, but then to be um, financially viable uh, going forward. But at least for now, uh, a win for the double AFC six years into their uh, existence of campaigning. Yeah, we've been talking about it for, for years. The entire football community's been talking about it for years. Uh, it's it's a long game, this one really, isn't it? I mean, inevitably, at some point in the future, how far that future uh, extends to, we don't know. Uh, Australia will uh, have a, uh, a, a thriving football competition at the top level with promotion and relegation. Is it in 10 years' time, 20, 30, 40 years' time? Uh, it's a long way uh, um uh, forward that we have to look to, to to plan and prepare for this. So I think that's the only way we can consider um, the announcement, given that, that uh, it, it's taken so long to get here. So yes, the dollars do sound big, but the passion of football um, in this country does run deep. And uh, and I think that one of the real keys to making this a success is is clearly to 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 dig back into the the foundations of what built football in this country, and that is the the established uh, migrant-based clubs that um, that have got a ready-made audience ready to go. And, and I say that uh, having just watched um, the Western Sydney Wanderers play Western United in front of pretty much two men and a dog at the, the Parramatta Stadium. It was embarrassing. It almost looked like uh, we were back in COVID times. There were so few people in that stadium. So um, I, I think that uh, once, once we see these uh, passionate um, people involved, uh, both from an administrative and, and supporting point of view, that's when uh, uh, the success of this Tier 2 will uh, really uh, uh, be displayed edge. Absolutely, uh, and it's an exciting development. We spoke about uh, the second tier on our very first program all those years ago, Rob. We so we've been anxiously awaiting the development. Uh, it, it is an exciting announcement, and it's really now time for the clubs. Um, oh, Willem makes a very good point. Under traditional structures of these clubs, Willem, yeah, they will find it difficult to meet the financial commitments required to not only secure a licence but operate with full-time playing rosters, coaches and, and staff. Um, so they're going to need external investment. I'm sure the Federation... And the AAFC has done its homework and they, I'm sure they know there are people in the wings that are waiting to invest in these clubs to help them secure the um, 
their place at the table. And who knows, uh, you get to this stage of the second tier and you're part of the B League or whatever it's going to be called, the championship, I think they would like to call it, um, then you're closer to being um, at the top tier with a promotion or relegation. So it is, as you said, Rob, quite rightly, a long game. But uh, now the spotlight turns away from the Federation Back onto the clubs and who can come up with a who can come up with a kangaroo? Melbourne City have signed Rado Vidisic as manager through 2024-25, following their brilliant 6-1 win over Macarthur on Saturday. Vidisic led City's women to their 2019-20 W League title during four years at the helm, before taking over the men's side on an interim basis since Patrick Kisnorbo's November departure. City football director Michael Petrillo said they're a club that always looks internally first, and Michael. They've done so here. Rado's been uh, an understated, hardworking um, servant of Australian football, basically. And when things are going well, uh, it's easy to sort of take the path of, of least disruption. So they've gone Montbert into Kiz Norbo uh, and now into Absolutely. Rado. And if you've had the pleasure of meeting Rado, he's a delightful man. He's uh, a beautiful person. He's a football man. He's uh, well and truly done everything there is in the sport. And I think it's a good appointment. And it sort of ratifies the city system, doesn't it? Um, uh, very significant. I think it's not lost on me that uh, Rado and Patrick Kisnorbo before him uh, both spent uh, big chunks of uh, their career at City in the women's program. And um, I, I think it's just a, a terrific uh, appointment. Um, uh, they're going beautifully at the moment. Um, we know the resources they have, the playing stock. So good luck to Rado. A, a good decision. Gary Van Egmont is back in charge of the Jets women's team for the rest of this season. He's been at the club as academy director and technical advisors. He is, uh, he's decided what's going on. He's not to his liking and he's going to take the reins himself. So all the best to Gary uh, and the Jets women there. Internationally, Harry Kane has moved clear of Jimmy Greaves as Tottenham's all-time leading scorer, netting his 267th in a win over Man City. That, as we said off the top, funnily enough, Derek helps Arsenal. Uh, a, a word on Harry Kane, Derek, if you can impartially comment um does his lack of trophies with both tottenham and england despite his bounty of goals make his achievement more impressive or less so i think harry kane will but he's already in and will be a premier league legend like no one racks out that amount of goals uh, and kind of carries a team like like he does so i think they're probably as much as i like to joke about how i've won more than harry kane uh with my uh, Hillsville third division title from last year. Um, he's obviously achieved it for club and country. He's a fantastic player. I still think that uh, he can win before his career finishes. He probably has to leave Spurs first to do that, though. Socceroos, Matildas and Pararoos Central for the Green and Gold Army to close. A number of Socceroos are really coming to the boil at club level. And with Arnie signed up, I think we can expect a pretty serious tilt at the Asian Cup next year. So make sure you express your interest today at ggatravel.com.au. Things have moved quickly for Harry Suter. Last time we uh, spoke, gents, uh, Leicester and Stoke were in the final throes of sorting that out. He was straight in for their trip to Aston Villa on the weekend. Did score an own goal, but uh, all's well that ended well. Uh, a 4-2 win that lifts them three points clear of relegation. And really just fantastic to have another Aussie back in the Premier League. Uh, great news as well, Michael. Ali Carpenter is back nine months after tearing her ACL. She took part for Lyon on the weekend against uh, Rode, playing the final 30 minutes in a 5-0 uh, a win. So that is massive news and perhaps back quicker than expected. Yes, it caught me by surprise, Willem. Um, it was great footage to see her run onto the ground on a bright, sunny winter's day in Europe. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, let's hope everything goes smoothly for Ali and uh, she's uh, starting in that uh, right-back position 
for the Matildas when they play Ireland at Stadium Australia in what's going to be a huge night for women's football, Rob. It's going to be massive, isn't it? And uh, the, the build-up um, is just sort of continuing uh, uh, every week. Your stories like that positive stories uh, are uh, the ones that we want to hear. We, uh, I guess, uh, will look forward a, a couple of months and, and, and imagine Ellie will be a key player in that uh, in that squad when uh, they run out uh, onto the park at Homebush for the very first game against the Republic of Ireland. Um, what an impact she'll make if she goes anywhere near uh, the kind of impact that Harry Sutar made, as we have discussed on this show in the past, when he came back from his ACL injury, then uh, I think there are some pretty exciting times to look forward to, gentlemen. Tony Gustafsson saves his squad for the Cup of Nations as well. We'll look at that in Women's World Cup corner at the back end of the show. But before we close, the Pararoos played just their second fixture on home soil since the Sydney 2000 Olympics on Saturday. It was a nil-all draw against the US in just in front of just over a 1,000 people. Uh, David Barber was the hero, Rob. He's the goalkeeper. He's the captain. Uh, he was a former outfielder, and he pulled off at least six or seven saves from good shots on target uh, mm-hmm. in the second half. Uh Chances galore, hard to score with the slightly smaller goals uh, and they play for an hour as opposed to the uh, full 90, but yeah, it was entertaining. Definitely jump on and have a look at the highlights if you get a couple of minutes uh, boiled down in the end to uh, to nil all, but yeah, over a thousand people at Cromer Park. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? A thousand people. What a, what a, a crowd to, to watch an inclusive game of football like that. So if you do want to, you can jump on YouTube and find it or 10 play. So uh, again, congratulations to, to all involved for uh, advocating and, and making sure that uh, that, that event took place. And uh, it's uh, the early stages of the growth of, of inclusive sport at that level. But uh, fantastic news. Well done, Willem. All right. Well, talking about exclusivity, inclusivity is the word I was looking for. Uh, we're going to talk to Craig Foster next. He's from... Oh, of course, SBS from Stan, but uh, uh, more importantly, he's an advocate for equality, for human rights uh, across not only sport, but uh, across humanity in general. He's got a loud uh, voice that uh, he uses metaphorically uh, to to advocate for, for causes. And uh, when the, the news came through last week that fever were FIFA were going to accept sponsorship money for, for uh, the Women's World Cup from Visit Saudi, the sponsors, the tourism arm for Saudi Arabia. Uh, Craig was one of the first and, and uh, most significant voices to comment on it. So what we're going to try and do as we set off the top of the show is to, to, to take the global perspective not only the Western perspective, but the Middle Eastern perspective, and uh, and and paint a picture as best we can with Craig's voice as the sort of intermediary of the whole discussion. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. Craig uh, is uh, a wonderful speaker and, and a deep thinker. So stick around. We really do hope you enjoy that. That is next on Box to Box. They sure are buying Hoyt Spices and there's still a month to go in summer and we've been talking about this for the last month or so and the wonderful food you can cook on the barbecue when you get your Hoyt's herbs and spices and pickled vegetables. I know I'm absolutely loving it. I roasted, Derek, a lamb shoulder with Middle Eastern spices in my uh, smoke fire barbecue. It just fell off the bone. Delicious. Sounds awesome. Rob, please send me the recipe. I sure will. Uh, and Edge, you must be looking forward. You're not far before you return home to a good Aussie barbie, mate. What have you got in mind? What are you going to spice up on your barbecue when you get back home? Well, I'm just coming to your place and raiding that uh, Hoyt's hamper that uh, you've just got hidden away. And it's uh, mm-hmm. not only is it hidden away, um, you know, somewhere where nobody else can get hold to it, it's that big, you need to hide it in the garage. 
it so is huge, absolutely is huge. huge. Like I've already I'll be raiding your hamper, and I'll be taking all those herbs and spices. I'll be getting a bit of uh, a, big, a big, nice bit of uh, pork ribs. Uh, mm. Some uh, spices on the pork ribs might even uh, put the lid on the barbecue, so it uh, you know it smokes uh, beautifully. Mm. Nice. Yeah, nice. And Rob, Rob, I used toy spices twice at the weekend in mm-hmm. one meal. I was cooking a because uh, it's been a bit cold here in Melbourne, so I did my um, meatball bolognese, uh, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and I definitely used the Hoyt's Italian herb mix. That is a good so mix. A, that one. A general, just getting the authentic flavours in there. And of mm. course, a, a couple of bay leaves as well, just to yeah. give it extra depth and flavour, and it went down a treat. Yeah, well, you see, going a bit of uh, Grana Padano cheese, just grated over the top of it, would have been absolutely delicious. And William, you're just licking it. William, you're licking your chops there, sorry. Um, and any bit, anything on the menu for you in the last week or so? Hoist wise? Yes, hoist wise, absolutely. Uh, one of my specialties, and it's a it's a short list, but on my specialty list is the baked eggs, shakshuka, Middle Eastern style, some yes. tomato, some cherry tomatoes, some cannellini beans, mm-hmm. um, baked up and then uh, into the oven with eggs and parmesan cheese on top. I've been cooking it for a little while. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty good, but it needed something additional, and Derek's just beaten me to it. The Hoist Bay leaves brings out yeah. a little bit of extra flavour in the tomato-based yeah. dishes. Beautiful, Rob. So, outstanding. See, the boys are going beautifully, and I know Damo, being the resident Italian on the show, listening... Uh, and making uh, sure the whole thing comes together uh, beautifully. Uh, he's uh, loving his food as well. We'll get him on again. He maybe give us uh, some of his thoughts on, uh, on on his cuisine and what hoist he's using. So make sure you get down to your local Coles, Woolworths, or independent supermarket. You will be happy with hoist. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box now. When it was announced last week that FIFA intended to accept sponsorship from the Saudi Arabian Tourism and Arm Visit Saudi, the response across the Western football world was immediate and summed up in an article written by no less a voice than former Matilda Vice Captain, former Executive Committee member of the Asian Football Confederation and a former member of FIFA Council, Moya Dodd, when she wrote, For FIFA to tell LGBTQ players and fans they should visit Saudi is to send them to a jurisdiction where they are regarded as criminals and where all women face seriously restricted rights, notwithstanding recent encouraging progress. FIFA would be selling them into persecution. It's hard to imagine a greater mis- match for the unique and valuable audience of the women's game has accrued to discuss this to try to understand what FIFA is thinking and what appears to be a tone-deaf decision. We're grateful for the time of one of Australia's leading human rights advocates and former skipper of the Socceroos himself, Craig Foster. Craig, how are you? Yeah, no, it's my pleasure to speak to you and I just wanted to congratulate you guys on the work that you do. You know, we need as much football media as possible and you've been doing a great job for a long period of time, so I'm pleased to be here. Oh, good on you, Craig. Thanks so much, mate. It's uh, it's uh, it's uh, a mission that we've we've tried to uh, carry with equal attention to what goes on on the park and and the important stories that go on off it with both the men's and women's game. And uh, and you know when we saw this story came through, uh, we my personal immediate reaction was pretty similar to the rest of the Western world. But um, Michael Hill talk to you in a moment has spent a lot of time in the Middle East as well and uh, and has got some questions about the perspective from the Middle East but to, to ask you directly I mean you've written it in a very uh, loquacious and, and article in, in the the, uh, the nine newspapers uh, so is there any argument 
that you can see that suggests that this is a good idea? Yeah, so it's, it's, I noticed that you mentioned the Western world in your opener, and I think that's important mm-hmm. um, because that goes to the comments that Gianni Infantino was making around Qatar 2022, for example, and which were quite disgraceful comments um, in my view because what people need to understand is that FIFA is an organisation that has one of the first and one of the most robust human rights policies in all of global sports. So we sit here as football people uh, in an in organisation, meaning the, the Football Federation of Australia and the players leading up to the highest level of the game, which is FIFA, for the first time actually bound to what is called all internationally recognised human rights. We are not bound to any particular religion. We're not bound to any particular region of the world. We are not bound to East or West. What we are bound to very clearly in the statutes of our global governing body is internationally recognised principles of human rights. One of those is non-discrimination on the grounds of gender. So it's actually very clear the responsibilities that we have as a game and that, and that Infantino and FIFA have. Um, they are prescribed, they are clear, they are a set of universal values that while whilst contested like everything else in human life, um, they are the, the, the best attempt that humanity has come together to find common ground whereby all peoples, all cultures, all genders and all religions can at least have fundamental rights for each individual person. So what's happened here is you've had a governing body which has brought a sponsor into play on a, on a women's tournament which comes is part of a state, so it is a state body. This is not a, just a, a, a private listed company, for example. This is Visit Saudi, which is the state tourism authority, from a state which is demonstrably contravening women's rights in a number of ways and which criminalises the LGBTI community. So the point that was being made in the uh, article that you referenced is that the women who are playing in the FIFA World Cup not only would have their rights contravened if they even visited Saudi, let alone being Saudi as a woman, uh, but in fact they would be imprisoned because um, a very large proportion of the women playing in the in the forthcoming FIFA Women's World Cup um, have a sexuality which is criminalised in Saudi Arabia. And for that reason, it's a ridiculous decision, but it's one that's very consistent with Gianni Infantino and the FIFA Council in not wanting to live up to their human rights obligations in any way. In fact, they're constantly disregarding them. And just finally, so what happened with Qatar 2022 is rather than reference the human rights that he's obligated to, what Infantino sadly and I think dangerously and damagingly did was try to characterise the, the obligations that he carries with him as FIFA president as a dispute between East and West. And that was extremely damaging because it completely disregarded you know, the human rights policy that he has. It obfuscates the issue. It doesn't um, contribute to greater understanding of the football community, which would be a wonderful thing as to what human rights actually are. And it pitted um, you know, two uh, you know, parts of the world, if you like, and, and two histories against each other in a divisive manner rather than saying, okay, it's got nothing to do with that. This is about um, the policy that FIFA has. These are the rights that we have to uphold. 
and we and our duty is to uphold them everywhere. Now that would have been a really powerful conversation that could have carried global sport forward, in my view. Once again, he he just simply doesn't want to know it because um, I think contemporary and probably historic, but certainly contemporary global sporting administrators are far more interested in where the money's coming from. Um, and and not interested in providing any conditions related to that, whereas even outside of sport, we're starting to see in the corporate environment this occur much you know more and more. Let's take for instance in cricket, where people are starting to say in Australia that you know if if we're going to have fossil fuel sponsors here, then there has to be conditions attached to that. Either they can't be here if they're not authentic, or we need to be. And players are saying this: they're saying we need to be convinced that you're on the correct path to um, zero emissions and that, um, you know, that you are an appropriately aligned sponsor with our values as players and as a game. That's not a conversation that football's having. In fact, it's having the opposite conversation. All we're saying is, where's the most money and how can we accept it? No response from FIFA so far. Infantino's been uh, uh, silent as he often is in instances like this. Are, are mm-hmm. we shouting into the wind? Is this inevitable? Are we going to see visit Saudi signs uh, in, a, in six months' time? Well, the history of FIFA says yes. Um, and, you know, that wouldn't surprise any of us, uh, definitely. Um, once a decision is made, it's very, different, very difficult to rescind. Um, the New Zealand and uh, Australian Football Federations, I think, rightly... Um, Senator, please explain. And, and I haven't seen that correspondence, but I read about it in, um, you know, with a reputable football journalist, Vince Regari, and it was reasonably strong. And what they were arguing was that this is just fundamentally contrary to what this tournament is standing for. Um, and so we need to know, you know, why this has happened. But to take the step to then be able to agitate enough that this sponsorship is actually rescinded, that's a very different thing in global sport. It very rarely happens. Um, I think it's good that people are raising that issue and, and demonstrating their, their discomfort. Um, but is Gianni Infantino going to put the money back on the table and say, well, um, you know, I, I don't think it's appropriate to accept it? Well, he hasn't done that in any respect throughout his entire term, and I wouldn't expect that that's going to happen now. But what that means is, you know, once the tournament, what it does provide is an opportunity for people to have this conversation, and it is a conversation. So, um, you know, the, the many of the players, I think, will protest. I think you'll see very strong pushback from Australia's players and, in fact, uh, many around the world. But more important is the conversation that we didn't have around Qatar, which is around, um, you know, under what conditions does sport operate and what expectations does it have of its sponsors and its hosts. Um, member federations, member communities are a little bit more complex because we have, you know, we have human rights issues all around the world. But you do have a choice as to the host that you choose, that you um, accept and certainly the sponsors and, and how aligned or unaligned sponsors are with your corporate values. Um, that conversation needs to happen. And so in one respect, I think Visit Saudi being a sponsor of this Women's World Cup is going to trigger many very, very important conversations um, that we probably weren't able to have around Qatar for the very reason that I said. Because once you divide people and say, oh, well, you're just being critical because you're in the West you know, and you hate the East, you've already um, you know, caused um, you know, that schism that is very difficult to walk back then people have to be explaining the human rights framework. We have to be talking about the United Nations. You know, we, 
you have to go back five steps. We should have already accepted that because we have a human rights policy. It should just be about what the obligations are on sponsors to bring those basic rights to life. Craig, um, FIFA, football generally, uh, the Arab world now is big business. It's 350 million people live in the Arab world. Obviously, Qatar hosted last year's World Cup. The FIFA Club World Cup is happening in Morocco right now. Next year's Asian Cup for men is in Qatar. The 27th edition of the Asian Cup for men will be in Saudi. Saudi is also the lead bidder to host the next AFC Women's Asian Cup. Uh, Qatar, Emirates, Saudi, they own you know, some of the world's most iconic European football clubs. Football and FIFA and the AFC have been engaging. Uh, you know, they've been um, all in in the Arab world for a long time. Um, my experience, I should declare, I've, I've spent many uh, months up to years over the last uh, four or five years working in the Middle East. So I have a perspective on how complicated and diverse uh, the Arab world is and how... Um, um, you know, significant the politics of the region are and how Saudi are a big leader within the Arab world. But um, what I learned from my time in the Middle East, Craig, is that the um, leaders, the, the leadership of, of these countries who are moderate, who are um, promoting uh, social reforms, were very stung by the criticism that Qatar was receiving. And they, in many ways, um, received the criticism as being unsophisticated and anti-Arab. What do you say to those moderate people who say this type of criticism, it doesn't promote engagement and it doesn't reflect on the progress that's been made or help the people that are in the trench fighting for that progress now? Yeah, that's a great question. And so before the Qatar World Cup, I spoke to the Australian ambassador in Qatar and we had this exact conversation. And it it is complex. Um, And so... You have, as you say, moderate forces trying to take things forward. And so, you know, if, if the criticism, um, you know, is at such a level, it allows, you know, the opposite side to simply say, look, the rest of the world doesn't care about what you're doing. And therefore, you know, it's futile, the steps that you're taking. So I, I, I get the complexity. Um, the problem is that what we need is a governing body, a global governing body who's capable of having this conversation. So that's the very conversation that should have occurred during Qatar. And, and, and what we should be doing is educating all of the, the football public and the broader public through the power of sport on what has occurred, what changes are occurring, what challenges are, are still very, very significant, and there are major challenges in Saudi Arabia, um, and including um, you know, with social surveillance, including what happened to it with Khashoggi, including, you know, um, Salma Al Shahab, who you know sent a couple of retweets and has now been um, jailed as a dissident for 34 years, and all of these issues um, means that the football community needs to be aware of them. Leadership has a huge role to play here, and that's why I said I was so disappointed in the monologue of Infantino, which just characterised what is an important discussion for all of global sport to have, uh, and a complex, nuanced discussion. When he just characterised that as East versus West, he buried all of that nuance. He buried all of the complexity. And that was the sad part of that conversation. Now, whatever reason he had to, for doing it, I would um, suspect that uh, you know, the financial rewards of working with countries like uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia are, uh, for someone like Infantino are a very important part of that. 
But he let the game down and he let all of us down. He let every fan down in characterising it in that way. So that's why I say this is occurring now. It's an opportunity to have really important conversations about what is the responsibility of sport to help people everywhere. And therefore, that has to be done through the prism of human rights. But the first thing that you have to say is it's a-religious, it's a-political, and it has nothing to do with East versus West. It is about the right, the universal rights of people everywhere. Now, um, you know, people may or may not know, but the international human rights framework itself is is very often challenged by different um, parts of the world, and that's part of the framework of coming to agreements on human rights, you know, through the United Nations. However, it is the best that we have currently. And what it does is it does keep us out of these arguments about religion. It does keep us out of these arguments pitting or either continents or ages or ideologies against each other. It's about staying completely out of all that, just saying this is the way that the world has decided uh, that women should be treated at the very basic level. Now, if that's not occurring, um, then a global sport like FIFA has, has a decision to make. You know, do we... Um, enable uh, countries like Qatar to be involved in hosting of events. I'm not talking here about just a member and, and playing. Right? I'm talking about actually hosting the events and being able to uh, associate themselves with, and we could say appropriate the social license of global sport. Um, and in so doing, what are the minimum conditions that are required for that to happen based on human rights? So let's take um, Qatar as an example. So there were thousands of um, migrant workers who perished. The numbers are difficult to find because, as we all know now, the Qatari government doesn't keep detailed records or do autopsies on migrant workers who they thought, uh, who they considered or characterised as dying of natural causes. Natural causes um, included working in you know 40, 50 degree heat or you know 14 hour periods, and therefore. Human rights bodies have a particular view as far as they can on the available data of how many people died to actually have that tournament. And what was clear was that at the forefront of helping Qatar overturn their um, slave labor system, the kafala system, was not FIFA. It was not FIFA. It was the human rights organizations and it was the labor uh, organizations around the world. The optimal, in my view, would be for FIFA to take that lead. So if FIFA are capable of saying, we'd love to have you involved, we want Saudi Arabia to host the 2030 World Cup because we are non-discriminatory as a body, but in order to do so, this is what we need to see. Well, that's a very different conversation. What we've got at the moment is saying, look, we just really want to look away from this human rights stuff because it's just problematic because it means we can't take money from visit Saudi and we can't have the 2030 World Cup in Saudi Arabia. So Infantino sees the human rights community as just a problem rather than saying this is actually bringing to life the non-discriminatory nature and the inclusive and equal nature of that global sport often talks about and is supposed to be. And so it's a very powerful prism, in my view, to have these conversations. Now, because we haven't had them, we don't have the answers. So under what conditions should Saudi Arabia be able to host the 2030 World Cup such that they're bringing women's rights and, you know, and other general freedoms to life 
consistent with what global sport believes it stands for? That's the question should be asked. But we're not asking it because what we've got is this binary nature of, oh, well, any time you say that it's not right, you know, you're just anti-East. You know, that's the ridiculous nature of the conversation that football is having at the moment. It seems to be emboldened. There's a lot of um, <clears throat> Arab commentators who do take this line of criticism as being anti-Arab and it, it is a mm-hmm. um, first line of defence which, as you quite rightly identified, um, is a distraction from the main issue. But a lot of these Arab commentators are now uh, focusing in on Australia and they're using the issues around Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, the current political debate in Australia. Do you think mm-hmm. um, Australia will come under as severe a criticism around some of our challenges, in particular, if you talk about alcohol mm-hmm. bans, um, children incarceration, all the stuff yep. in facing the Indigenous uh, issues in our country at the moment. Yep. Do you think that we in Australia will come under such uh, fervent criticism um, as compared to the Arab world? That's what mm-hmm. a lot of them say to me when I have the opportunity yeah, to talk great. to them. Yeah, I hope so. And I've made that clear from, you know, from the start of this conversation when I started talking about Qatar. Every country has human rights issues, and the beautiful thing about us hosting the World Cup is I'm hoping, I'm, at the moment I'm not very confident, but I'm hoping that everyone wants to come here and talk about First Nations, right? That I'm hoping everyone wants to come and talk about how the hell do you people treat refugees in this way? You know, I'm hoping they come here and start talking about the incarceration of children at the age of 10, you know, when the United Nations says that the... the the uh, minimum age of criminal responsibility when children are actually aware really of what they're doing is, is 14, for example. Yeah, these are really, so what I see sport as is an opportunity to have all of these conversations. And when countries, including us, want to host these events, we should be opening ourselves to scrutiny because the world comes to play and all of the world coming here should want to know how it is that we're conducting ourselves particularly when there's an intersect to football. And that's what we saw with Visit Saudi. So the connection that's been made is that, you know, you have this, these, these um, transgressions of basic women's rights under human rights framework, and then you have women playing in the tournament who would be criminalised to go there. So when the intersection between the sport and the rights is evident, it's much more powerful. Um, but I don't mind people coming here and saying, well, you're now using this tournament to promote your own country around the world, and yet I've discovered that this is what you're doing on disability rights, for example. I think it's an important part of sport. Um, So I think inherent in your question is the fact that what in Australia we also read is the non-Arabic media, you know, by by definition. Um, And and therefore we get a particular view um, because, um, you know, the English-speaking world tends to be aligned on a number of these values, so-called. Right? And, you know, and I completely accept that. That, that is just simply the reality. Um, what I said many times and what I would love to say to the Arabic world is that there is a great deal of prejudice from both sides. The problem is that sport shouldn't play into that. We shouldn't fuel it and we shouldn't um, contribute to it. What we should be doing, and this is the sad part about Infantina, is we should be saying all of the world should be coming to Australia and asking us really fundamentally important questions about the way we treat people. 
all of the world should be going to Qatar and Saudi Arabia and asking the same thing, but we're all asking the questions based on these universal values that are written into the human rights framework. I don't care which country it is, I don't care which culture it is, which which religion, it's just completely immaterial to me because that's the point about human rights. Um, so that's a long answer to your question. The, the the simple answer is, oh, absolutely. You know, that's that's really part of what I'm looking forward to. I'm hoping that the world arrives here and says, what the hell is going on with First Nations rights here? And that would be, you know, that would be really powerful, particularly in a, boy, in a year where we're all talking about the voice. Well, Craig, they do say when you point the finger at someone, there are four fingers pointing back at you, so um, or at least three, uh, maybe a thumb as well. But uh, you take the point, mate. Um one thing is for sure, we know you'll keep talking about it in the lead up to including the event itself and past it as uh, we'll do our best as well, mate. So uh, uh, maybe we'll have you on again a little closer to the event and sort of uh, see if we can pick apart some of this conversation yeah, and right. uh, the broader context of it as well. Brilliant. No, that was good. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, guys. Uh, we always do, Craig. Craig Foster, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Uh, okay, stick around after the break. We're, we're going to talk about football on the park. Uh, we're going to talk to Nancy Frostick from The Athletic. Uh, the Lionesses were amazing last year. They really showcased uh, what women's football is all about, the uh, uh, the inclusive nature of what women's football is all about. But uh, she's here to talk, or she will be here to talk to us about uh, what her expectations are for the English uh, women's side on the park. So stick around. That's next on box to box Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, pretty heavy discussion there with Craig Foster, but uh, I think any of our regular listeners would expect nothing less of us. We do try to bring the uh, the big topics as well as the football topics, uh, uh, both on and off the pitch. Um, one of the big, big discussions on the pitch, of course, is uh, that very uh, event we were talking about with Craig, uh, and that is, of course, the Women's World Cup and a team who is going to come to Australia with great expectations that they may well repeat the heroics of uh, Wembley uh, last year in the Euros is the Lionesses. And the last time we had our next guest uh, on the show from The Athletic, she was a very excited uh, lady. And she's going to come to Australia because it's going to be part of her honeymoon when she arrives in this country. And we welcome Nancy Frostick from The Athletic back to the show. How are you, Nancy? I'm good. Yeah, still very excited. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> all it's- good got to be a lot of fun uh, that's for absolute sure and certain and uh, uh, I, I guess that the the context of obviously having you um, here is we are just building up and uh, and and it's the women's world cup taking uh its gradual position in the sporting uh, dialogue but uh you know, had it been a, a men's world cup in the uk the the discussion is just non-stop six months out it's uh, it's leading every every uh, conversation and and contextualize in terms of the premier league and uh, and who's going to be picked uh, is that conversation beginning to take place um in england especially off the back of the success of last year yeah i think um We've basically we've seen the the lionesses in the media a lot more, which is great anyway, and doing lots of sort of appearances and stuff like that. And so there's been a lot of and what about the summer? What's coming up? So it definitely feels like everyone's looking forward a bit more than um, maybe previously, just because they've really put women's football on the map since um, the summer. But I think we'll probably see it kick up a notch in the next couple of weeks because um, England are hosting the Arnold Clark Cup, which um, is 
like just a mini sort of invitational tournament um sort of off the back of the us doing the she beliefs cup actually um and i mean it never gets massive attention just because it's not you know a major competition but gives a good implication of kind of what serena vegan might do and it just jogs memory and uh, you know reminds people that there's uh there's women's football international women's football happening um and it'll kind of you know lead on from there really well listening to uh, i was Jenny to talk sport this afternoon. Our time it was the breakfast show, and uh, and they had uh, a, a long uh, feature piece on on the, on the WSL, uh, which had not been a regular uh, element of of their breakfast show for for years gone by. If you uh, have the Australian uh, subscription service that delivers the Premier League, you get just as much women's football delivered to you in all of the highlight package forms. Um, so it's it's served up to you on a platter. And one thing I did notice over the weekend watching the the, uh, the Chelsea Spurs um, uh, match was that the crowds are gradually uh, beginning to build, uh, certainly not to the sold out sort of capacity stadiums that we were seeing during the Euros, but but that level of interest uh, and the noise that you're now hearing when you when you're watching those games from afar is uh, is increasing incrementally yeah it's um, it's been really interesting actually because i think it's getting to a point where for some clubs particularly like chelsea where they tend to sell out of season tickets every year now um it's whether they need to actually move somewhere slightly bigger because getting hold of tickets for somewhere like king's meadow or um arsenal down at, at boreham wood um it can be a bit of a, a struggle or they release them quite close to the game. Um, so then it's a case of like, where do they go next? Because on the odd occasion, um, Arsenal will play at the Emirates and they will sell 30,000. Um, but it might just be that um, because it's an event, because it's a spectacle, you know, lots of people are thinking, all right, they're playing at the Emirates, let's go down. Um, but it is encouraging to see kind of <laughs> that that's a possibility. Um, and, and the same happened for, for Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and a couple of the others have done it um, at the men's grounds as well. So um, it's definitely it's definitely encouraging. Um, and I think if it keeps going this way, then you might get to a point where um, women's teams will sort of start to think about where's best in terms of um, like a permanent home. It's just, it kind of comes back to a bit of a debate that, we have here um, about the WSL a lot in terms of whether we undervalue women's football um, with the ticket price and the entry price and, and a lot of other things um, compared to sort of the the talent that you're seeing. Um, and I presume if they move to bigger stadiums, you know, they probably need to keep ticket prices cheap just to make it accessible. So it's uh, it's a bit of a debate at the minute. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Kingsborough before. And of course, it was only a few weeks ago that we had that uh, kind of bizarre uh, event where the game was called off after seven or eight minutes and there was a lot of recriminations and just for our, our listeners that was around the the frozen nature of the pitch and how the game didn't seem to be going ahead but then suddenly was going ahead only to be called off has there been anything more on that Nancy any more kind of recriminations or thoughts on that and I suppose if not in general is this also the same emblematic, emblematic of yes that the women's game has come so far but when you have things like this happening it, it doesn't it doesn't help in terms of the profile and how the game is perceived yeah i think it was one of those um sort of classic wsl gaffes that seems to happen every 6 months to a year where it's just like how has this come to you know come to pass in in a professional league um i think the game was on for about four or five minutes or something before they called it off because it was just like an ice rink the players were skidding all over the place and um I think 
it's caused a lot of uh, reflection on where the WSL needs to do better and maybe where they felt the pressure to put the game on because it was on TV and also just like whether there should be under pitch, um, under soil heating, because, you know, a lot of men's stadiums, particularly in the Premier League, will have that. But then, you know, it, it is worth saying that loads and loads of games in the EFL, which is where a lot of these women's teams play, um, you know, using the men's EFL stadiums, um, loads of them got called off. So I would say probably two thirds of games from Championship League One, League Two and, and definitely below that were all called off on the same weekend. So it is... You know, it's, it's not that it's just a women's football problem, but it is expensive to have these things like under soil heating. And sometimes even then it doesn't make a difference because, um, you know, we had probably two weeks of sub-zero temperatures, particularly overnight, and it was just it was just rock solid. So, um, yeah, it, it has led to a lot of questions being asked, though. And I think it is worth constantly reassessing that if we want women's football especially elite women's football which you know in terms of conditions and um standards and everything you want to be on a par with with men's football if we can then um it, it has sort of provoked a bit of a an assessment of, of where we are in terms of that side of things beth mead so obviously she got into new territory with the win in the bbc sports personality of the year and that there is no australian a comparison that I'm aware of. Um, so for our listeners, this is a big televised event from the national broadcaster that celebrates the best sports people every year. And, and a women's footballer generally is not amongst the favourites to even make the shortlist, never mind win it. But again, that's just indicative of how far the game has grown. And then I read that over the last few days, uh, England's home fixture against Brazil, the so-called finalissima has also sold out Wembley um, for for that uh, battle between the European champions and the uh, and the Latin American or South American champions, the the game's never been in ruder health with stuff like that going. Has there? Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. Um, so when the shortlist came out for sports personality, you're right. Women's football has never, or even you don't get a lot of women's athletes at all on there. Generally speaking, uh, normally in an Olympic year, you might get um, you know you might get a few on there. Um, so for Beth Mead to be on there in the first place was amazing, but then pretty much from the, the point that shortlist was announced, she was the favourite to win. And, you know, there was, um, I'm trying to think who else was on there. Snooker player, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan was on there. There was a few others, um, from, you know, big, big, um, presences basically it's it's as much about I think sporting achievement as it is kind of about the personality element is important in sports personality and it is a public uh, vote so it's it's a bit of a, a popularity thing but again that makes it even more remarkable that that Beth Mead won and was able to see off a few um really popular male male athletes um and also um England won team of the year um and uh, Serena Vigman won coach of the year so they they hoovered up at um an award ceremony where, yeah, it's it's a lot down to kind of public opinion and it's a lot usually down to, you know, um, which men's team sort of captured the imagination more than anything that women's uh, sport was able to able to offer, really. But um, so that and then, yeah, the Finalissima um, is the first one. Um, and we've seen, you know, when England play at Wembley, so they played a friendly against the USA um, earlier in the... Well, late last year um after winning the euros and that sold out as well so these big sort of um 
showcase games at Wembley have proven really popular um, and it makes sense for the FA to keep trying to put them on. Um, it should be a good one, I think. It'll be it'll be a, a good test as well. We'll probably learn more from that um, ahead of the World Cup than we than we will maybe from the Arnold Clark Cup. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting either way. It certainly will be interesting, Nancy, and uh, it'll be equally interesting to see how England do translate that form when they do come to Australia and New Zealand for the World Cup. Your uh, assessments and views of of just what England uh, uh, needs to do, expectations uh, within that group, and, and comments that Serena Wiegmans Wiegmans made uh, to, to to date. Uh, uh, yeah, just uh, share us some insights. England should, you know, the Lionesses should be looking well beyond that group, and um, you know, the ambition will be bettering the semi-finals defeats that they've had in the past couple of um, World Cups anyway. Um, but yeah, as, as a group, it'll be interesting just because England kind of blew aside quite a lot of the uh, established European teams at the Euros, as in, you know, Norway previously a really tough team and and they'll have gone through a bit of a change since then anyway um, for their group. But teams like that, so again, Denmark, traditionally um, a pretty solid, um, difficult team to play against. And so it'll be interesting to see if they've maintained that level because there's been a bit of an evolution in the England squad. Obviously, Ellen White's retired, Jill Scott's retired. And they weren't, Ellen White was, you know, pretty fundamental to to starting those games in the Euros and then um, Alessia Russo would come on and and finish them. But um, just losing that experience in the dressing room. Um, they've all experienced winning something now, um, but it's just a case of how that squad balance kind of works out, who comes in to replace them, uh, whether there's any turnover in other positions as well, just with form and fitness. Um, but yeah, I think I think the expectation will be that they'll, they'll both be tough games, um, obviously waiting to find out who that, that third team is. Um, but yeah, it, it will be a challenge, but I don't think they'll be afraid of saying that, you know, they're turning up at this tournament to win it, um, which is quite refreshing as long as it goes to plan. Well, we could keep you going for, for ages longer. Maybe we'll get you back on in another uh, couple of months to, to do a preview just as the um, the final group uh, playoff winner is is uh, announced and uh, and we're uh, we're counting down the days to, to the, the event itself. Yeah, that'd be fab. Exciting Lovely. times. And you might even be here when uh, with a with a ring on your finger, Nancy, about that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good chance it might be, yeah. Excellent. Well done, Nancy Frostick from The Athletic. Thanks again for joining us. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk more Women's World Cup and wrap it all up next on Box to Box. It is time to stock up right now. Where at, Willem? Chemist Warehouse, Roberto. Of course, you've got to make sure you're concentrating because there's 30% off the Nair and Chic range for the ladies, 40% off the Centropay and Sally Hansen range, 40% off Rimmel Cosmetics and get a huge half price off the entire L'Oreal Paris Lipstick Cosmetic range. That is what you can get at Chemist Warehouse right now, Michael, uh, but you don't find them uh, at that sort of prices, uh, discounts in, in Bangkok where you are. No, I don't think Nancy finds them in uh, in the UK either, but uh, Chemist Warehouse Rob in Australia, go down to your local uh, high street shopping centre and you name it, uh, their prices are cheaper every day, Rob. They absolutely are. And Derek Gill, save on Wagner Keto Burn, 60 capsules, $8.39. I know I'm on the keto diet right now. It's working a treat, especially with those keto uh, uh, supplements and the Fat Blaster Platinum Metabolism, 30 capsules, twenty-two forty-nine. Yeah, those those sound uh, sound good, Rob. I don't know what you're implying there, but uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure they work a treat. 
I am implying nothing other than that I was a bit of a tubby boy before Christmas mm. and I've been taking them and I'm not as tubby as I used to be. That's all I'm suggesting, Gary. And OptiSlim, if you don't mind, VLCD Platinum 21 sachets, $34.99. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings they every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great show so far. Craig Foster, Nancy Frostick. It's Women's World Cup from uh, beginning to end this week, and for good reason. And, Willem, you've got a couple of little stories to uh, – to, if you haven't got your tickets, just get online because you will miss out. There's absolutely no guarantee if you, if you don't get – if you leave it till the last minute, you, you won't be uh, you're watching uh, watching any football live because uh, all these games are going to sell out, aren't they? Well, that's called arms, Rob. I'll be on this week. Uh, thank you, thank you for the reminder there. Uh, the Matilda squad, much discussed over the past eighteen months or so, but it is starting to take shape. Uh, we know we've got the well, we've got three matches. It's a what is it? A six match tournament coming up, the Cup of Nations uh, within the next two weeks, I believe. Uh, Tony Gustafsson, or TG as he's now called, that things are going well, uh, has picked his squad. It is going to need to be trimmed down to 23 um, by the time the World Cup comes around. Uh, nine members, Edge, have 100-plus caps. This really is the uh, the time to strike if they're ever going to achieve what they uh, what so many of us think they are capable of. Uh, Claire Hunt from Western Sydney is uncapped, although Gustafsson said he's been watching her for a while and would have picked her uh, had she not been injured. And Amy Sayer is also there, perhaps lucky to squeak in. But there's three big names outside the squad at this point, Edge. I'm going to read them to you, and I want you to uh, let me know if you think they will be there. The first one's a bit of a gimme, Ali Carpenter. She'll be there, provided her recovery and uh, the little bit of time she has now playing at her club uh, goes to plan. She'll be there. Kaya Simon? No. Kaya, I think, is uh, in all sorts of trouble with injuries, and I I doubt that uh, she'll make it back. Chloe Legazzo, who's made six appearances for Western United this season, but all off the bench on her return from an ACL. Yes, and I understand um, she's got a nasty foot injury, which has uh, delayed her return into the squad. So, um, yes, uh, there's still time enough for Chloe to um, come make a, a full recovery. But, yes, you'd, you'd rather be um, playing than not playing, that's for sure. First game against Jamaica on the 16th of Feb of that Cup of Nations tournament. Uh, to close, we'll move on to the referees who have been appointed for the tournament. 33 field refs and 55 assistants, all female, which I didn't actually realise, but does make sense now that you think about it. Uh, Kate Jakovitz and Casey Rybelt are our two Aussie representatives, uh, as they have been for a long, long time now. And Derek Stephanie Frapper, the French woman, is also there, uh, fresh off making history as the first woman to ref a men's World Cup match last year, Costa Rica. Uh, versus Germany, which was a, a thriller in itself on that third match day of the group phase. Yeah, well, it's, it's great, great for for her, and she's obviously now going to be one of those elite uh, referees in in the World Cup. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the tournament progresses, who who sort of shines in the group stages, and then uh, you know, traditionally, then FIFA start looking at those people for the quarters, semis, and then ultimately the ultimately the final. So it's a competition on the pitch with the, the countries, but it's also a chance for each of the uh, individual nations sending a referee to, to show just how good their refereeing system is. And, of course, we wouldn't expect it to be any less professional than the men's one. So, yeah, I think, uh, 
good signs, as you said, Willem. And there is a nation that will be making their refereeing debut. Heba Sadia will be an assistant referee, a lineswoman, the first Rob from Palestine to officiate at a FIFA World Cup. Okay, boys, uh, thank you. Uh, been a good show this week. Uh, Willem, you're going to take a couple of weeks off, mate. You, uh, you're heading off for a holiday. You're just going to put your feet up and watch a lot of sport on the telly. No, I'm up to Brisbane and then up to Noosa. I've never been to Noosa. I think I'm the only person in Melbourne uh, who hasn't been there, but I've got a couple of mates doing the open water swim, so I'll be watching them on the beach with a beer. Excellent, mate. All right, well, enjoy your break. Um, I don't know that I'm going to be able to hold up your high standard, uh, especially with pronunciations, but we'll do our very best. Uh, Enjoy your break, brother. Thank you. No, look forward to it. Look forward to, uh, to tuning in. Michael, good show. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto. Yes, uh, very good show. Enjoyed it very much. And, uh, yeah, we march on to another week in football. Just so much happens every week in the world game, Rob. Oh, the one thing we always know, and I know our listeners would be well aware of this, is that the moment we 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 turn off the microphone, a massive story will drop. By the time we wake up the next morning, another half a dozen. You can never pack it in. So, um, yeah, we do our best to try to wrap them up uh, every week and um, and catch up on the ones we missed the following week, don't we, Derek? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, thanks for taking me on the show, guys. It was a good one. Beautiful. And Damo, to you as well, mate. Thank you uh, behind the desk, making sure everything gets edited nice. Nice and tidy, and we sound as good as we possibly can. And to you, our listeners, we're really uh, grateful. And a lot of people have been subscribing since we've been calling it out to you. We're getting some lovely reviews on uh, on the, the various podcast uh, catches. So if, if you like what you hear, um, if you could uh, give us a nice little rating, it uh, it always does help with the uh, uh, the rankings and, uh, and all of the rest of uh, what goes on when you put together some content like this. Make sure you subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside, as I say, uh, wherever you get those podcasts. Tweet us at box to box NTS and Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and make sure you join us throughout the week as those podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.